Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Camille Preston, Ph.D., PCC, who is Founder and Chief Executive Officer of AIM Leadership. Today we will discuss rewiring for results. As a psychologist, executive coach, writer, facilitator, and public speaker, she strives to guide companies and individuals to reach new heights of leadership, performance, efficiency, happiness, and fulfillment at the organizational development company she founded. Camille, welcome. Hello, I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Thank you. This topic, Camille, that we're discussing, and let me clarify for our audience, when we're talking about rewiring for results, we're talking about rewiring of technological devices that so many of us have become reliant on for our day-to-day lives in business and even at a personal level. Would you tell us a little bit about the scope of this rewiring that we're discussing? Absolutely. So what I have seen is that we are living in an always on, always connected, always something else we should be doing world. And it's leaving our brains and our lives overwired. And not only is this changing who we are and how we operate in the world, it's fundamentally impacting how happy we are in the world. And so what rewired is really about is understanding and appreciating what does it mean to be overwired? How can you step back and unwire or unplug to get perspective? And then how do you step back and rewire to use technology habits and strategies to be even more effective and to create the life that you actually covet rather than the one that's being driven by your current use of technology? How do you know when you've done too much wiring to use your wiring simile? Sure. So people who are overwired tend to feel like they have two speeds. They're either doing, 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 or they're done. So there's a kind of frenetic high energy that can at sometimes feel good because they're getting so much done. And then there's just an exhausted kind of checked out aspect where people feel like they're just all they want to do is surf the web or shop or sleep or eat because they've gone too far and in this day and age so many people will say I think I have ADD and the reality is they might have ADD but more likely they're feeling overwired from this always on always connected world we're living in. Has that become the new standard? Because everybody seems to be doing, 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 as you're describing, and then not doing anymore because they're so exhausted. Yes, absolutely. It's a, the, the book is written for folks from, say, 30 to 55, and we've had people as young as 14 read it and rave, and as old as 85 saying, you know what, this speaks to me. This is what I'm navigating. So it's a phenomenon that we're feeling across the generations, across the life cycle. And what people don't realize is that there's some really fundamental shifts that shift how we engage with work that can help us be even more effective. 
A lot of what we're describing sounds as well, when I, when I think about it, it makes me think of multitasking, which has become a way of life. I think just about everybody multitasks these days. You can't have a conversation with someone somewhere without them pulling out their BlackBerry or smartphone and starting to talk to you at, while at the same time they're checking that or their tablet or even at conferences, you see people sitting back and doing that. Absolutely. Multitasking is perceived as the only way to get things done in this overcommitted world. First of all, there's no such thing as multitasking. Our brains can only serial process information. They can only process one thing at a time. And so when we're multitasking, we're shifting from project A Project B to Project A to Project C to Project B to Project A. And each time we shift, we have to stop what we're doing. We have to refocus on the project we're moving to. We have to think, gosh, what was I working on? Where was I going? What's next? And even though that happens really quickly in our brain, it's costing us our most precious finite resource of our brain's energy. So when we multitask, things take 25% longer the quality diminishes, but, which people have understood, but what people don't appreciate is how it's fatiguing their brain, how it's limiting long-term retention. Because when your brain is shifting from project to project, it fails to activate a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is essential for translating memories from short-term memories to long-term memories. And so when people say they can't operate except to multitask, my goal is often to let them look in the mirror and see what it's costing them. And there's there's good news and there's bad news for women here. The good news is that when men multitask, or I'll say when women multitask, our IQ only drops by five points. So that's good news for women because when men multitask, their IQ drops by 15 points. The bad news for women is that because we're better at multitasking, women tend to do it more, whereas men tend to say, you know what, I can't multitask, I'm going to do one thing at a time. So it's one of the rare, unique places where you see gender differences coming to play, and the reality is none of us are as effective as we could be. In fact, it costs us over 13% of our salary is lost due to inefficiencies associated with multitasking. Would you go over that again, the part about the IQ and the points? I think that a lot of our listeners are going to be keen to hear that. The, the women are more effective at multitasking. Let, let me ask, let you say it. Sure. So um, no one is good at multitasking, but women are better than men. So when women multitask, our IQ drops by only five points. When men multitask, their IQ drops by 15 points. So men often will multitask less frequently because they're not as good at it. And so women are multitasking more and it's fatiguing them more. Is that a logical conclusion? It's fatiguing them more. It's, um, it's costing them lost productivity because it takes 25% longer to complete a task and it reduces the ability to retain information. Now, there, there are some exceptions. For any behavior that you 
can automate, it's okay to multitask. So for example, um, I love to run. And so running is pretty automatic for me. And, you know, I'm here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, very close to the Charles River, and I tend to run on the river. So I often don't have to think about how to run or where to run because I have very set habits there. And so for me, I can, quote unquote, multitask and think or talk with a friend when I'm running because those other behaviors have been automated. But the problem is that most people are multitasking by doing two cognitive tasks, neither of which are automated. They're surfing the web while they're on a conference call. They're texting while they're driving. They're looking at their email while they're in a conversation. And that's where the the true problems really, really surface and start to mount. Now, you just mentioned one that I was about to ask you when you said running was an exception because it was something that you did, if I understood correctly, that didn't require cognitive thinking. It, but then you said driving and texting, which, of course, is a very controversial thing. I would even say, what about driving and speaking on the phone? Would you tell us about that? Sure. So. Um, there's lots of different driving. You can be driving in a foreign city where you're trying to navigate to a new destination. And that is incredibly taxing because you're trying to figure out where you are and where you're going. And so that drains a tremendous amount of resources as compared to driving on a commute on a, where you get on a highway and you drive for two hours on that same highway. You might have to watch for traffic, but you're not thinking about where you get on, where you get off, and all those logistics. So some driving can be automated. Some driving can be very highly tapping and taxing on our cognitive capacity. Is there a difference between the effort required for texting and the effort required for speaking? Say, for example, in the same example of driving, if you are saying driving to work, which is something that you do daily. So it's, let's say, maybe not as easy as running because, of course, mm-hmm. there are a lot more things involved in driving and it's a lot more dangerous. But it's something that it, that is secondhand for you. Is there a difference cognitively between texting and speaking on the phone while you do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh- We've been speaking since we were born. We've only been texting for a shorter period of time. Plus, it uses, I could, without going into too much detail, texting requires both um, auditory and fine motor skills, whereas speaking is, is much more automated. So a phone call is much safer than a text. I'm, I'm not promoting either <laughs> for those in public safety. I'm just trying to use that as an example for understanding multitasking. The second part I think is really powerful too is that we lose a tremendous amount of our salary down the drain for multitasking. And this is important for individuals who are employed, but also for individuals who are employers. And in our book, we did research on two habits that we see associated with being overwired. One is multitasking and the other is interruptions. And what we found is that making, building upon the research that's been done around multitasking and interruptions, when we made very conservative estimates, 
about the frequency of these behaviors. Almost over 48% of, of individual salary was lost productivity from these two behaviors. And the reality is that the people who are paying that price are both the individual by working later, longer hours into the evening when they get home, and also the organization is losing money in this process too. So there's a real impetus for individuals to start to think, okay, how do I rewire myself, my behavior, my actions so that I can be more effective in the workplace? And there's a real impetus for organizations to start to think, okay, what do we need to do to rewire so that our associates are using technology proactively and productively to be even more effective? And we talk a lot about being purposefully productive. In the overwired state, you can be going so fast and so furious, but you're not necessarily purposely productive. You're not necessarily moving closer to the tasks that you need to execute on. What do you mean by purposely productive? Would you define that for us? Sure. So, so often we can be very busy, but not necessarily get the most essential projects done. All too often when people are getting ready for a vacation, they're really clear on the deadline and that they want to be done so that they can really unplug on vacation. And they get really clear on what are the projects they need to execute on so that they can really enjoy that vacation. In that moment, they're clear on the outcome and often flexible on the approach to get that done in the most effective, efficient way. When we don't have that clarity of outcome, we can be doing a lot of behaviors without necessarily driving a result. A a simple example is um, email. We're all addicted to email. Every time we open our email and we see a new message, we get a little neurochemical squirt of goodness in our brain. It feels great to get new emails. It's, it's how we're wired for novelty. And yet email is an absolute addiction. And so often we can lose hours just responding to emails without actually solving the problem. We're, we're more focused on hitting emails back and getting them out of our inbox than we are focused on solving the problem at hand. It seems that there might be an inherent conflict in today's business model or business environment because not only are individuals driven to these concepts of multitasking and emails and smartphones and tablets and so forth, but many times it seems to me that they are almost required in order for them to qualify for whatever job it is that they're employed in, whether they're the bosses or they're working for someone else. It seems that these have become essential tools in today's business environment. How do you break that? That's a a great question. And that goes to the next. So we've talked about what it means to be overwired, pulled in so many different directions in a frenetic effort to try to catch up and get things done. When we are able to step back to get perspective, to get on the balcony of life. Let me give you a little more information. Ron Heifetz, a very famous 
psychiatrist at the Harvard Business School talks about adaptive leadership. And he says, all too often, we spend too much time on the dance floor of life, going, 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 twirling and moving with great alacrity, that we don't step back and get up on the balcony to look down and say, where are we? What matters most? Of all the actions we're taking, what's working? What could be working better? And so for individuals in this overwired world, they not only need to step back and get on the balcony, they need to do that when they're removed or moved away or unplugged from technology so that they can get really clear on what matters most. They can focus on letting their brain drain from the toxic kind of neurochemistry that happens in an overwired world. They can clarify what is it that matters most and how do I simplify my life to get those results. And so when we unplug, we get that perspective and we can step back into our busy life, step back into the dance floor of life and live at a higher level in terms of our fulfillment, but also in a more effective way. Our brains are wired better. The neurochemistry in our brains are more effective. We have built the strategies that will help us to be effective going forward. And all too often people say, well, Camille, I'm, I'm so far behind right now, I don't have time to unplug. And I would argue you don't have time not to unplug. Unplugging is so unbelievably vital to get that perspective and to let your neurochemistry change. And it often doesn't have to take that much time once you've built the muscle. You were talking about emails and how receiving an email gives you a, a reward of sorts that makes you feel good and that, that creates a sort of an addiction. And I think for some people, the texts and perhaps even phone or phone messages have a similar effect. Would you help us get a better understanding of what that's like and how we can control it? Sure. So we're wired for two things. Back in the day, back in when, when we were out living in the wilds, we were wired to look and notice what's new. It was a, it was a pure safety factor to be able to notice predators approaching us. So we're wired for that novelty, which is what forces us to kind of check email. We're also wired for connection. It's part of our DNA as humans. We get, we have specific neurons that go out looking for connection. Both of those are healthy and important, it's when they um, become cravings or things that we don't have any choice about that they become maladaptive. And so when you think about um, navigating the, all these incoming stimuluses, it's starting to build a muscle. It's starting to build discipline about when you check things and how you access things. And so for anyone who's tried to build um who's made a New Year's resolution, they probably know that their willpower is finite. So if I'm sitting at my computer all day and I have Facebook open, I have uh, LinkedIn open, I have an IM program open, I have my email open, and each one gives me a notification every time something new arrives, I have to exert a tremendous amount of my willpower trying to stay on target, trying to stay on task of what matters most such that when I leave the office 
and I've spent all my willpower resisting Facebook and Twitter, I might come across a chocolate chip cookie and eat the entire batch because I have no willpower left, if that makes sense. And so for people to be effective, it's noticing kind of what is it that draws them in and then proactively setting up boundaries or fences so that they don't have to use willpower to avoid using them, to avoid tapping them. So, for example, you might set aside a certain time in your day when you open your email box or certain hours of the day when you check voicemail messages. Is that what you're referring to? Absolutely. Setting uh, specific times in the day and specific amounts of time that I'm willing to focus on that. So finite time periods. It's also reducing the temptation. So closing down programs, not just turning your email to vibrate, but sorry, turning your phone to vibrate, but actually turning it so that there's no buzzing or popping or tweeting or no distractions happening in your smartphone, on your computer so that you can focus. The second thing that we know neurologically is that our brains can only focus with intensity for 90 minutes. After that, we just can't deliver at the same level with the same results. And so I encourage individuals to start to think about scheduling their day in 90-minute increments or less. And then in between those increments, taking time to really shift gears, to go out and do something different, whether it's to walk around the block, to spend time calling their mother, to um, reorganize their office, whatever it is that's going to use a very different part of their cognitive capacity and is really going to allow them the opportunity to let the neurochemistry shift in their brain and then come back after 15 minutes and focus again. And those 90-minute intervals just have a profound impact on people's productivity when they, when they build that, again, new muscle, that new habit. 90 minutes worth of a cognitive activity and then a 15-minute break doing something completely different. Is that right? Yes, and the more different, the better. So changing your physiology, changing your focus, kind of the optimal thing is to uh, spend time in nature or listening to music without words or looking at photos of people you love, something that literally will get the cortisol and the adrenaline out of your brain and rebuild the catecholamines, which are the healthy chemicals in our brains. The, the second thing that might be of real interest to your listeners is to think about how can they rebuild meetings so that meetings are actually optimized because we've all been to those meetings where we've been participating in part, participating, but they're, they don't, the meetings might not be run well. And so we check our email, we're not fully there and people leave the meetings without having clear outcomes about what needs to happen. And so for business owners and people who have the opportunity to create this type of change, I encourage them to limit meetings to no more than 50 minutes and to have meetings only be scheduled between 10 and 2 during the workday. And this does two things. There's a number of things, actually. It allows for associates and employees and colleagues to have some periods of deep thinking time between before the 10 o'clock meetings start or after the 2 o'clock meeting, so they can do the actual work of the business, not just the perpetual meetings. Second, with fewer hours allowed or open for meetings, 
meetings have to be run much more effectively, much more efficiently. And I encourage people to think about 45-minute meetings with five minutes to talk about actions. What are the next steps? Who's going to be responsible? Who's going to, how are people going to be held accountable? And then giving people 10 minutes to really transition, capture those thoughts, maybe get a cup of coffee and show up at the next meeting fully present, fully ready, fully available to contribute at the highest level. How are business people reacting to these ideas because some of the thoughts that come to my mind is I'm, I'm chuckling silently as I hear you describe this. I says, wow, this is a, a very different world from the one that we live in right now. I have 15-minute meetings scheduled between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. and 90-minute work segments with 15-minute break intervals and a time set aside to answer phone calls and emails. People have become so used to getting responses quickly that it's almost offensive if you don't respond to an email or a phone call or a text very, very quickly. What kinds of reactions are you getting? Well, you know, what you speak to is absolutely true. If you have 45-minute meetings that are really productive and focused, people are going to need to be in the meetings, not on their email. And so there's a whole new culture that needs to be engaged and communicated within the organization. And people need to start to say, what is an appropriate response time? Do we expect it within 10 minutes? Do we expect it within an hour? Do we expect it within a work day? And that's going to really recalibrate how people start to think about doing business. The, the upside is that this is really, really good for the employee, and it's really, really good for the bottom line of business. It's just a matter of building the new muscles, building the habits, and starting to change the behavior. That's going to be hard. And that takes a lot of discipline and a lot of determination and a clarity about why they're making the changes. What's on the other side? What's in it for them? When you meet with business organizations, business executives, do you have data that you share with them? And what kind of reactions are you getting from them in response to these uh, ideas, revolutionary ideas, I'm going to call them? Sure. So a lot of times people think, oh, Camille, that sounds great, but you don't know my business. And I come back to them and say, you're right, I don't know your business, but I'm not sure it matters. What what does matter, obviously, is when you have a client-facing business, you obviously need to be responsive to the customer. And in the back end of the business, it really starts to shift how people show up. So I'll give you a quick example. We have an article coming out in Fast Company soon, and one of the things that I encourage people to do, and it's covered in detail in this Fast Company article, is to start to really think about closing down their day. All too often, when we're overwired, we're pulled in so many different directions that we're running out of the door, maybe to pick our children up from daycare or to get to a commitment, that we don't close down our day which means that we don't start to think, okay, what are the various projects that I need to be thinking about? What are the different 
items that I need to be responsive to in tomorrow's meetings. So I don't, we don't spend the time we need to capture the projects. The second step after capturing all these new projects is to step back and say, okay, which of these can be deleted? Which of these are not necessary, non-essential? Which of these can be delegated? Once you've captured the projects and you've, you've kind of thinned them the best you can, the next step is to start to think, okay, which of these are most important? So I'm going to prioritize which are most important, and then I'm going to plan my day as best I can into 90-minute intervals to make sure I'm most successful. And all of this makes tremendous sense. It's the last step that's infinitely powerful, which is to think about what do I need to do to prepare myself for tomorrow? So that might be making sure you have all the needed articles. It might be sending off a couple emails asking for resources. But it's having that outbound traffic to get the things that you need. So when you sit down to work the next day in that focused 90-minute interval, you can actually execute on the task. You're not distracted and pulled in different directions. And those four steps put together, again, it's another muscle. It's another habit. But when businesses see this in action, it's one of the things that differentiates the, the high producers and the crisis management team, those people who are always in crisis management with their fire, hair on fire. There are those who might argue that the technology we rely on today to maximize our efficiency has changed the way that we perform and that humans by their very nature are adaptive. Is there data, are there studies that address the issue of the 40% loss in salary and the 25% longer time that it requires when you're multitasking? Are there individuals that you have studied who perform at a higher performance rate than their peers who are unitasking or rather, I guess the opposite of multitasking. What can you tell us about that? So, so your question is, are there some people who actually do multitask and are more effective than people who unitask? Yes. So in other words, what data do you have or do you have any data that addresses the issue of loss of productivity and or the opposite of that, excess productivity, I'm going to call it. Sure. So the research is pretty clear and very compelling around the costs of multitasking, and it's um, very consistent. And the the newer research is starting to show again about the costs of retention and the costs of brain fatigue. Um, there's a wide range of human performance. So some people are much more able to, much more productive than other folks in multi, you know, even when they're multitasking, some folks are better than others, which is just human nature at its core. What's interesting is that, and I think this might be what you're getting to, is that there's a real rush. There's a real energy. There's a real kind of sense of elation that can happen when you're overwired because you're doing so much. You're moving through so many projects. You're in this go, go, go mode. It can feel great until it doesn't. And that's when people crash, when they start to see, you know, balls being dropped, 
and uh, relationships being impacted and the stacking cumulative effect of the stress, of the adrenaline, of the failure to sleep, etc. So the, 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 the research is quite compelling about the costs and the stacking. And what's really hard is breaking the habits. What's really hard is changing the behavior. What's really hard is doing what we know we should because the other can feel really good, checking email, doing so many different things, crossing things off the list, even if we're not doing them with as high a quality. Are there particular types of careers or job types that lend themselves better to excelling at unitasking versus others that may be more challenging? That's a great question. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm as versed in um, the research on that. I'd have to spend some time really consulting the details. What I, we do know is that some people are better at processing large amounts of information at the same time simultaneously, whereas others, that's just a, a you know, a, uh, inherent challenge. And so that's one of the things that we test for. Uh, psycholo- psychologists will do assessments for people who, for example, want to be a part of air traffic control. They need to be able to attend to a wide range of information simultaneously and be able to process the changing data for the different arenas. Is, is that responsive? Uh, yes, that you're being very candid. Thank you. Can you point us in the direction of specific studies that will help our audience learn more about these issues? It, it sounds to me when, when I hear the, the complexities behind this that it's, it's taken a while for people to adopt these practices and it may take a while for the business environment and, and people individually to adjust. So are there any sources that you might refer us to for people who want to learn more and become better informed about the issues? Sure. So I would offer a couple, um, something that listeners can take action on right now, which is uh, visiting our website, which is AIM Leadership, A-I-M Leadership, all one word, dot com, and then backslash rewired. That's actually a hidden page, so they need to remember aimleadership.com backslash rewired. And what they can do is enter their name, their email address in that, on that page, and they will be sent a free copy of an ebook that we wrote for Citrix, which is called the Rewired Resolution. And it has eight specific strategies, actionable strategies that people can put into place right now so that they can take action. And of course, on that same website, aimleadership.com, people can buy the, a copy of the book that is available. And just, just cause it's a kind of funny story, I was actually, um, writing a very different book. I was writing a book on virtual effectiveness, all about how do you collaborate with people that you don't necessarily see face to face. And I just couldn't finish the book. I couldn't finish writing the book. So I went on this writing retreat actually in Sedona, Arizona. And I figured either I would come home with a book or I would come home with clarity that I wasn't an author. And Rewired literally just flew through me. It, I wrote it in almost four days. It took me about a year and a half to edit the book so that it would be really tight and really concise and really focused. It's written as a book that someone could read on one leg of a flight and walk off the plane 
knowing exactly what they need to do to put five, six strategies in place today. So it's written for people who are overwired and want to create change. It's written as both a practical guide and also as a conversation starter. How do you start to have these conversations first with yourself, maybe within your family to start to set boundaries around when and where you use technology, and then ultimately in the workplace to get the results that you and your colleagues and the organization is committed to delivering. You've mentioned a book several times during our conversation, and I know that you're referring to a book that was published recently, but if you would clarify for our audience, is the title of the book Rewired? Absolutely. It's called Rewired, How to Work Smarter, Live Better, and Be Purposely Productive in an Overwired World. And it's available on Kindle, and then the most cost-effective way is to buy it on our website, which again is aimleadership.com. And it's a really actionable, again, specific implementable strategies that will help people make that shift forward. What drove you to write a book about that topic, if I might ask? Well, you know, again, it just kind of flew. It it almost came to me. It almost needed to be written, and I, I didn't almost have any choice. It was something that I had seen in my own life, the challenges that I was struggling with. But I do a lot of work coaching and training and working with leaders and executives around the country, helping them around being more effective as a leader. And it was a consistent, constant theme that I heard from clients saying, it's not about working faster or longer or harder. We need new strategies to work more effectively, to be able to be more impactful. And so that was, that was really the impetus for the book. And, uh, again, the, the feedback has been just humbling in terms of what a, what a pain point it is for people around the country thinking about how to use technology better and how to use technology for what it was promising us, not what it's driving us towards. It just So just to clarify, you're not saying that people should stop using technology. You're saying that they should manage their use of technology more efficiently. Is that right? Absolutely. I love technology. I think it's phenomenal. And what I am, my purpose behind the book is to help people understand what does it mean to be overwired and how can they unwire so that they can leverage technology to work for them rather than being a slave to technology. And this concept of being overwired, is this a personal thing? In other words, one person might be at a comfort level that is acceptable for them, and someone else doing the same things might be overwired. Is that right? Yeah, so it, it, it manifests in different ways and for different people. And it sometimes isn't always tied to technology. And I'll, I'll use an example of one of my very closest, dearest friends, Christy, who's a phenomenal mother. She's a guidance counselor extraordinaire. And she's pulled in more and more different directions, trying to meet the needs of her kids, trying to be the mom that she wants to be, trying to make sure she's taking care of her health, trying to make sure she has a green home. There's so many demands that happen in our lives that we're pulled in so many different directions that we lose track of what matters most. So even though Christy isn't someone who 
uses a lot of technology, she definitely feels this always on, always connected, always something else that she needs to be doing type of world that we all feel. And so stepping back sometimes from technology, sometimes from the demands on our lives to start to recalibrate and actively and consciously choose the life we want is profoundly powerful and setting us up to be even more successful, have even more fulfilling relationships, and again, to deliver the results that we want. Is, in some cases, the overwiring a result of escapism? Is it a method that people use to run away from issues that they don't want to address, whether it's not being able to perform at an optimum level at work or running away from personal issues. Do you see that as a common theme? Uh, sure. So that, that's a, um, I would say that's a sister theme or a similar theme. A lot of times we put our attention towards the things that we feel that we can be successful in. So we've all seen people who might be workaholics because things aren't going as well on the home front and everything's going peachy on the work front. So they spend more and more time working because they get a lot of positive regard, positive reinforcement for what they're doing. So we're drawn towards things that make us feel successful. When we're emailing and we get a lot of emails back from people who appreciate us or we feel connected to people through Facebook, we're going to spend more time doing that as a source of escape, as an outlet, as a way of feeling good about ourselves, even though it's not necessarily purposefully productive, it's not necessarily moving towards things that matter most long-term. A certain amount of that is acceptable, but when you're, when you're doing too much of that, then it could be a symptom of this escapism. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had one client share with me the story of his frustration that his wife would say, I'll, I'll be to bed in a couple minutes. And three hours later, she would climb in bed 3 a.m., you know, having spent hours surfing the web sh- shopping. And, you know, that was a, an indicator of something else that was going on in their lives, not necessarily her desire to shop online. As we move forward in our daily lives and try to integrate some of these very insightful and thought-provoking concepts that you've shared with us today. What three tips would you share with us, Camille, that we might be able to take back and apply in a practical way to our day-to-day lives, not necessarily revolutionary going from wherever a thousand to zero, but something that's maybe in the first steps sort of range. What three tips would you share with our listeners? I would say start being conscious of your email consumption and limit yourself to maybe it's four periods of time throughout the day and then you work down to two or three periods of time during the day so that you're not always connected to email. So starting to build boundaries around your email Hard at first, incredibly rewarding over time. I would say uh, stop filling your lives to the margins. Stop filling your lives where every minute is scheduled 
and start having white space, empty space where you can be in between. And this could be as simple as on your commute to and from work, not turning on the radio, not checking email, not talking on the phone, but just being and letting kind of your self be fully present with what is. It's about not scheduling your calendar so it's back-to-back, being able to have some space for the ebbs and flows. And then the last one I would encourage people to think about is going to be non-traditional, but it's perhaps one of my most favorite and most fun things, is take a nap. One of the best things that we can do for our brain health is to take a 15-minute nap, especially if we can get horizontal. It changes the our physiology. It changes our neurochemistry. It revitalizes and re-energizes our brain. And if you're not sure about this, think about how many brilliant ideas you might have in the shower. That's a time when your brain is fully relaxed, fully uh, fully available. And oftentimes it's right after you have taken a nap or you've woken up in the morning. And so those naps can really both revitalize our brain and re-energize us. So we see some of the more progressive work environments like Zappos, like YouTube, building in spaces in their office buildings where people can actually physically take a nap. And even if that's not a possibility for you, when you transition from work to home, go ahead and just, if you drive, put your seat back and close your eyes for 10 minutes before you drive. Or when you get home, take a 10-minute nap horizontal. You'll be amazed at how much energy you reclaim once you've been horizontal. It's, I would also say, a whole heck of a lot of fun to take naps. To recap, your three tips are build boundaries around your email, stop filling your life to the margins and add some white space, and take a 15-minute nap, add a 15-minute nap to your day. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. We know the benefits of meditating, and we also know that when we're living overwired, it's really hard to meditate. And a nap gives you very similar positive benefits as if you were meditating. Thank you, Camille, for joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. My pleasure. I look forward to hearing the responses from your listeners. And again, I encourage people to visit aimleadership.com backslash rewired to get a copy of our ebook, The Rewired Resolution. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Camille Preston, PhD, PCC, who is founder and CEO of AIM Leadership, who discussed rewiring for results. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. <laughs>